that's just about perfect. And Excellent. I'm just about perfect too. I mean, my levels are. We're both perfect. <laughs> We're both perfect. What a great start. I know. <laughs> Ding. Dreams of some noble dreams With his fingers and toes And everything in between With his friends and his foes And come see what that means Dream of some noble dreams Hello my dears, this is your pal Noble Coming to you from a small house on a cove on the coast of Maine, which is a state in the northeast corner of the United States of America. Fun fact is this morning a bald eagle flew by the window and I also saw a dog. So <clears throat> some things to talk about today. First of all, the guest for today's episode is named Cy Montgomery and she is a naturalist and explorer and human and animal lover and I will just say that her Website on her bio, nope, bio on her website, starts out like this. To research books, films, and articles, Cy Montgomery has been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Zaire, now the Congo, and bitten by a vampire bat in Costa Rica, worked in a pit crawling with 18,000 snakes in Manitoba, and handled a wild tarantula in French Guiana. She has been deftly undressed by an orangutan in Borneo, hunted by a tiger in India, and swum with piranhas, electric eels, and dolphins in the Amazon. She has searched the Altai Mountains of Mongolia's Gobi for snow leopards, hiked into the trackless cloud forest of Papua New Guinea to radio collar tree kangaroos, and learned to scuba dive in order to commune with octopuses. So it was a real treat to talk with her today. I think that we could have talked for 100 hours given the time, but we didn't have that much time, um, and we still had a wonderful conversation. It was really nice to meet her and get to hang out with her in her house in New Hampshire. And uh, so I I only recently learned about her, so the only book of hers that I've gotten to digest so far is The Soul of an Octopus, which I really, really loved. It was up for a National Book Award and stuff, and it's just a real treat. I listened to the audiobook, which she actually reads which I enjoy. I like when authors read their own work. And so we talk a lot about that as well during this talk. And something that we didn't get to that I wanted to mention was octopuses, uh, about two-thirds of their neurons somewhere around there are actually out throughout their body in their arms and everything. And so they can, their arms can actually make in- decisions independent of their brains, which are up in their heads. And I think that's pretty amazing. And so they can literally multitask um, with with completely different different missions going on with each arm. And I was thinking about that and re-listened to this episode, this old episode of Radiolab called Four Track Mind, which I won't spoil, but I really, 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 really recommend you going to listen to. It's sort of an unbelievable thing that this one this one man has a uh, brain that works the way it does, and it kind of reminded me. Uh, of octopuses when I was reading it. I mean, listening to it. Either way, whatever. So, okay, what else here? We have... Oh, so another thing. There's a tiny bit of a spoiler for the movie Arrival in this uh, in this talk, although I took out the part which was more of a spoiler. So you can listen to this 
um, before you watch Arrival if you haven't seen it, but I also really recommend watching that film. It won't really ruin it for you unless you're like some kind of super genius like an octopus. And I talked to my buddy Les recently, who's also mentioned in this talk, and it was really fortuitous timing, I think that's the right word, and she told me about an app called iNaturalist, which is something you can put on your phone or whatever, and you basically can go out and take pictures of uh, plants and animals and stuff that you don't know what they are, and then they get identified via crowdsourcing, so basically um, people can log on there and see what you've taken a picture of and then hazard their best guess, and uh, I guess can work together to concur on whatever that is. So I think that's a really cool thing. So if you have that technology and you go for walks out in the wilderness and stuff, uh, you can take, take this along and hopefully can expand your own naturalist repertoire and learn more about the natural world around you, which I think is really pretty special. And one other thing we talked about is um, time and the way that time sort of seems fluid and that it can change depending on what kind of individual you're around whether that be an animal or a or a person and and whether we perceive time differently um being individuals or not first okay first this is a little bit of a tangent but also talks about being individuals and i don't know about you listener but sometimes when i sit in a group full of humans i sort of look around and try to imagine the fact that each and every one of us is having our own experience and is looking out of a different pair of eyes and listening from a different pair of ears and thinking independent thoughts or even if i just sit with one other person and i suddenly realize that they're looking at me and probably thinking about their own stuff i don't know i kind of lose my mind trying to think about stuff like that but it is kind of exciting all right, and so one more thing we're talking about time. And we we're talking about how time is so much different when you're young, how things seem so much longer and seem, uh, you know, stuff seems to accelerate. And I was, I've been thinking about that over the years. And as somebody who's been sort of resistant to growing up in certain departments of my own life, I was noticing that every time I've done something new, like be it a job or something like that, like the first day, the first couple days seem to drag. They're just so long. There's so much to learn. There's so many new things to incorporate. There's so many new things to experience. And then as soon as like a little bit of a routine starts to build, then that starts to seem to accelerate. And so I think that this is my theory right now, is that for a long time, I tried to do a whole bunch of different things all the time and to never really fall into a routine. And I think that was the way for me to try to get time to keep slowing down because I really relished being a kid when time was slow and I didn't have this sense. Like people, always, people grown-ups always say that the summer goes so by so fast and I was thinking, when I was a kid, I was like, I don't remember ever thinking that. I remember it feeling like a really long time, and I was just kind of surprised when it was time to go back to school. And then that did make it seem a little short, but in general, I wasn't even thinking about it. Like, if you're in July, might as well be forever until you have to go back to school. And then now, especially this summer, like, watching how quickly it seemed to just sort of dissolve into the ether was really um, pretty interesting to me. And so... Yeah, so I was thinking about that, how, like, I used to do that a lot. I mean, I still do to some extent, just try to do a bunch of different stuff and never fall into a routine because it would give the... It was an attempt to try to slow time down. 
And as we grow older, it's inevitable that we start to recognize a lot more patterns. And so time just sort of, you know, flops by because unless we have like really good beginner's mind and try to approach everything as if it's new every time, which most of us most most of us don't really have the energy or awareness for, then it's just sort of uh, we're going through the emotions to some degree, and that degree is enough to accelerate time. And uh, anyways, just some thoughts. So two songs this week, both coming up from the talk. One is uh, "Seen All Good People" by Yes, which is uh, I'm just doing one section of the song, which is uh, that's came up and also uh the obvious one is octopus's garden by the beatles and so i did some quick versions of both of those my voice is a little ragged but i'm doing my best and i've been sort of uh, had some mystery virus in my system the last few weeks i'm feeling pretty good today actually and so my brain's a little slow in the in a couple of the couple of the um conversations that i've had for the podcast we have some really wonderful ones coming up so i'm really excited to share those with you and please 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 continue to send in your own stories and poems and thoughts and songs those submissions are just the best thing ever i've gotten a couple people reach out to me with feedback about how the podcast has been um reaching them and that just so warms my heart so um susan and melanie i'll call you both out thank you so much so much so much And if you can spare any financial support, please feel free to drop some monies in the tip jar, which is in the show notes. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people who have. It really helps, especially some of these talks. You know, I have to travel to and everything. So it's a huge help. And uh, so you can submit anything to nobledreamspod at gmail.com. And if you want to see pictures of the guests that are better than the ones on the website and stuff or more varied then you can follow along on instagram at noah days noble nights and i also try to put no i don't try to i do put announcements up for each episode and i hope that you are all doing wonderfully hopefully we'll get Cy back on the podcast in the future because oh my goodness just endless and she's such a wonderful wonderful being so Thank you all. Everything that's mentioned in the talk, I definitely recommend, even the things that I haven't read yet, because I trust size recommendations. If you haven't seen the movie Temple Grandin, oh my goodness, then just please do, and uh, let me know how it went. Okay, love you all. Bye. And just for the rest, for the rest, I'm clear. I meant to shout you out, not call you out. Um, great. Well, so we're rolling, and thank you so much for having me. And oh, I'm maybe, thrilled. Yeah, maybe if you'd be willing to just give a little, who are we talking to? You know, just oh, a little inform- sure. introduction. All right. I'm well, for. I'm Cy Montgomery, and I'm a naturalist and the author of, I think, 28 books now. They're all about animals. I write for adults. I write for children. I also do a little radio. I've, I've done a little bit of film. Anything to get the word out about keeping this world whole with all the different species. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to support that work. <laughs> and how did you come to love the natural world? 
What was that a childhood fascination or what, what would that journey look like? Well, I think all of us as children naturally love the natural world. We, we send our children to bed clutching little bears and mice and dogs and children's dreams are populated with more animals than people. And that makes sense considering that our species is a hunter-gatherer heritage. You know, for, for most of our existence as a species, if you didn't pay attention to the natural world, you couldn't find anything to eat and somebody was going to come and eat you. So I, I think this is something that, you know, we long for in our deepest, deepest souls. We long to be in, in wilderness with other species, not on some some skyscraper pinnacle alone with nothing but other human beings. But this is something relatively recent. And I think children's love of animals kind of gets wrung out of them by the modern modern world. Mm. But not you. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So how'd you luck out? Oh, gosh. Well, I, you know, I, I was an only child. My father was a was a general, and I I didn't spend a lot of time with other children when I was a child. Nobody wanted their kid to play with the general's daughter on on the base, and I went to school at a private school far away from the Fort Hamilton where we grew up. So I guess I was lucky that I wasn't always running around with noisy children who make the pigeons fly away and, you know, scare away the dragonflies. And I remember, you know, dragonflies and birds would light on me. They they weren't afraid of me. And I learned to stay still. And that was great. My closest friends always were animals. And when I was, when I was really little, I don't even remember this, but when I first began to speak, I firmly believed and announced to my parents that I was a horse. My mother was really worried about this. So she went to the pediatrician and he assured her that I would grow out of this. <laughs> but um, And I did, but only when I realized I was really a dog. And so my big existential problem in life at age three was that everyone seemed interested in teaching me how to be a little girl, but no one was around who could teach me to be what I wanted to be, what I felt I was, a dog, until my parents brought home, in fact, a dog, <laughs> Molly, <laughs> whose picture is still on my desk to this day. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's an interesting... I, I think a lot of... It's, it reminds me of... Um, uh, not invisible, but what is the word? Imaginary friends mm. as well. That there's a, and there's certain um, innocence of childhood that until we've learned to, we're sort of taught out of it, whatever it is that we have when we're a kid, then it's as real as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And then a lot of that gets lost, um, which I personally think is sad. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do too. Yeah. You no, know, I, I think, you know, people are great. I married one. You know, many of yeah. my friends are people, yeah. <laughs> but just imagine if, if you only ate one food or you only listened to one piece of music or you only could see in one color. Well, when we only know one species on this glorious earth with all this diversity and all of these different kinds of souls to teach us, we're impoverished by not knowing the others who share this planet with us. And I've been trying to get to know other species all my life and I've I've not made that much headway. I, I only began to scuba dive in my fifties, so I knew very little of life on the in the sea. And the sea 
has most life, you know. And um, I, I know a relatively large number of vertebrate species, but most animal life is invertebrate. Yeah. And so that actually is what brought me to octopuses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what, well, we can certainly talk about octopuses a lot because that's a big thing. Well, actually, the first thing I want to say about octopuses, which you know, there will be probably a lot of people cringing right now because they go, don't, don't you know the words octopi? It's, it's the number one thing that we hold dear that we all think we know that other people don't <laughs> is that it's actually octopi that we know the plural. But according to you, that's not true. <laughs> so we have I to know, totally I recalibrate. I love, <laughs> I love saying octopi and octopuses. It just sounds like your lips won't stop moving, you know. But um, as I started to for research for my book, I was hanging out with all of these octopus researchers. And the very first thing they tell you is, no, no, it's not octopi. Because octopus is a Greek word. And the I ending for plural is a Latin way of pluralizing things. So you can't just stick that I on the end of a Greek word. So there's another another plural that you can use, octopodes, O-C-T-O-P-E-D-E-S, but no one will know what you're talking about then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I've embraced it already. And I, I've, <laughs> I've even, you know, I've been telling people about your book and using the correct word and nobody's nobody's correct me yet but um i'm sure it'll happen down the road i'm glad to have uh, an explanation <laughs> from something approaching an expert that's right um and i was so i was i was curious i was reading to your um your biography on your website and it seems like there was a transition for, for you at some point between interacting with animals such uh, as something to be observed and sort of fascinated by and some sort of a transition into being seeing them as your teachers more and and that seems to be a theme for a lot of your work especially now and i'm curious about maybe how that transition came about or or how how learning from animals in order to be human has become a big theme for you hmm. well i think even as a child when i wanted to be a dog and finally there was a dog to teach me how to be a dog my darling molly without my realizing it Animals were my teachers from the start. They, they taught me to be still. They taught me to, to listen and to watch and to be open to their truths, which may be different from our understanding of the world, but that animals like us do think, feel, and know. And I think most children are very aware of what they think and how they feel and what they know may be different from us. And if it were not, fish would try to escape from the water and hyenas would not roll and vomit, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> animals do have different different motivations than we do, but they they do share with us all the basic emotions. They they experience happiness, they experience fear, they experience anger. Anybody who's ever watched any animal can see that. You can even see that at times in insects even though we're not that closely related to insects as we are with the other mammals. Um, Fellow mammals share with us 90% of our genetic material. So it makes sense that we should be able to read them and that consciousness and thought and feeling that has so much adaptive value for us must also have similar adaptive value for them. But going back to your very good question, in my writing... um, 
my, my very first book was about the three women who studied the great apes, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and the third woman, fewer people know, Beruti Galdikas, who studied orangutans in Borneo. For these women, understanding these great apes, for them, the very first real step was understanding their study animals as individuals. Mm-hmm. Not as you know rocks that could be numbered, but as individuals who needed to be named and their individuality recognized. And the women brought many things to their study, but one of them was their willingness to involve not only their intellect, but also their intuition and their emotions. They interacted with these animals. They fell in love with these animals. And this was something that previous researchers were cautioned against. So my my first book was really kind of examining the relationship that these women had with their study animals. It wasn't really a triple biography. I did not care that much where, you know, Diane Fossey grew up or where Berute Galdikas went to school. I mean, I put that in. Yeah. But what I was really interested in was the nature of their friendships with their study animals and how that became a lens allowing them to understand these animals in a deeper way than anyone ever had before. So from... From the start, I think I I recognized that animals can teach us. Only recently, though, have I begun to write about these animals in a more personal way, about how they've affected me and my life. I, I don't, I mean, writing a memoir, I was dragged into writing memoir kicking and screaming, and I've only done two of them. But um, in the latest one, I really talk, I write a, a memoir in 13 animals. Um, 13 individual animals who personally changed my life by showing me what it means to be and how to be a good creature. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that one. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't only had the time to read one book. I don't know how I got to this far in life without ever having her hearing of you. Oh, I think many people are doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean that. I don't mean my life is safe now. I just mean that I can't believe I, that no one ever told me about it. Because I've been so fascinated with animals my whole life. Oh my gosh! And, well, I'm so glad. Yeah, and that's and now you'll tell other people. <laughs> so when when we were, um, you spoke in Stratford at the townhouse, which is where I live a good amount of the time, and I was driving by, and someone, and I saw these cars and everything. I said, "What's going on?" And this woman goes, "Sai Montgomery speaking. She's so awesome. She says she studies octopuses and blah blah." blah. And I said. <laughs> All right, I'm in. <laughs> like, I, I got nothing else going on, and uh, and I was so pumped. And I and then I seeing seeing all the the books that you've written and everything. So I'm really excited to to dig deeper because it's yeah it's uh it's it's very much in line with with at least to my judgment so far how I also view the world and um and so it's yeah it's really exciting to me <laughs> to, to oh, like, have this thrilled. new opening i just a couple of months ago my friend les told me about um oh lawrence do you know this guy who wrote the elephant whisperer and the last rhinos in oh, africa I know that book and i can't think of the author's name yeah. i haven't i haven't read it but it's uh, supposedly those are both and elephants and rhinos are among my oh my favorite. god they're so oh lawrence anthony yeah ah. uh and the, and i read or I listened to the the Rhino book and it was just like heaven to me. You know, it was just Aren't such an incredible, great. Oh, they're unbelievable. Oh my gosh, I once met a Rhino. Well, 
rhinos and pigs have a lot in common, and, and they, they are related species. And um, I, I had a pig named Christopher Hogwood who was 750 pounds, and I learned <laughs> from him how to make a pig completely relax and roll over grunting in porcine bliss. Well, I found out that this move works on rhinos, and I was at a, um, a sanctuary for, for rhinos, and the rhinos were used to people. I mean, I don't recommend you go up to a rhino, you know right. that do this. <laughs> but if, if you rub them in their inguinal region, they too will flop over grunting in pleasure and let you just rub their bellies. It's a fa- fabulous thing to oh, roll a rhino. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us a sense of uh, something comparable so we can get a sense of what a 750-pound pig looks like? Oh, Wow. I, well, I'm not sure I can picture that. Um, very solid. He's very solid. My guy, Christopher Hogwood, was a black and white spotted pig with enormous, very furry ears. And his his coat his coat looked pretty good until he got older and he developed a bit of porcine pattern baldness. But um, a pig that big is tremendously strong. So strong that did you see our barn door? The door uh, on our barn—it slides like all all barn doors. It's 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 it slides along on this roller. Yeah, yeah. With his nose, he can lift that up off its rollers and make it crash down. With his nose, he can walk up to your house, touch a clabbered, and it will spring away. And with his nose, he can tap your woodpile that you've been working on all afternoon and. Everywhere, Lincoln Logs. I mean, so, so strong and so powerful and so solid. But the thing about him, and a big guy, the thing about him that was so astonishing was, and he had huge tusks too, pointy tusks, but he could be so tender and gentle with people. And he had had a lot of friends who were children. He had friends who were in wheelchairs. And to a pig... You, you might think that toppling someone over in a wheelchair would be as much fun as toppling over the wood pile, you know, like, oh, they get to spill out of the wheelchair and there's a lot of action to watch and all that kind of thing. But no, he never knocked over their wheelchairs, even though he loved knocking things over because he knew that that would, he had theory of mind. He knew that would be no good. Yeah. And one of his dearest friends was a teenager who, who, was very ill when she met him. She had cancer and died at 14. But even when she was having chemotherapy and was almost too weak to do anything, her parents would bring this frail, sick girl over to be with my 750-pound pig and know that he would take care of her and fill her day with joy. So there was no room in that day for cancer. There was only room for her and her 750-pound friend, Christopher Hogwood. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. I'm really fascinated by how not only we as humans tend to interact differently with animals than we do as human, than we do with humans, but also how much more intuitive and using different senses animals seem to be with us and how that can sort of... I'm My grandmother, who died... Um, gosh, I guess 10 years ago, um, had a sort of steady decline with dementia. And uh, in the last few years of her life, she was she was not particularly verbal. You know, she wouldn't really speak much or anything. But I remember, like, my parents went up to visit them and brought their uh, dog friend with them. And 
immediately she just warmed, you know, a nice doggy and just, you know, spoke so much more clearly. And, and, really? And, wow. Yeah, and just um, just responded so differently to, to the animal than than she had to any humans for quite a while. Wow. And stuff like that is just you know endlessly fascinating to me that they seem to tap into different different parts of us than than we yeah. get to. You know, and people with autism. Like mm-hmm. one of my friends is Temple Grandin, who's a very famous autistic oh, yeah. person who's yeah. authored many books and does lectures, and she's great. She's just great. And I'd never met anyone who I knew was autistic before. I probably have met tons of people on the spectrum. I might be in the spectrum, who knows. But when I first met her, the first thing that struck me was like, there is not a phony molecule in her body. And I think this is one of the things that people recognize with, with, um, with animals, is that they, they don't, they're, they're utterly genuine. Mm-hmm. And they see your genuineness. They, they see through any vermilion. Um, veneers. veneer yeah they see your vermeer yeah. no, they, they see they see who you are and they're such good observers you know we we have gotten so that we rely so much on just one sense we rely so much on our vision but they are in touch with many other senses and in some cases senses that we don't possess right you know like sharks can sense the electromagnetic pulse of your heart you know, um, and elephants can hear infrasound, and birds can see ultraviolet light and polarized light, and insects can taste with their feet, and you know all of these amazing other senses that 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 they have, and I I think that they they put us at ease and they awe us at the same time. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> I think so too. Uh, there's two things I've been thinking about. One was just the the sense of animals being individuals. I think is something that gets lost a lot, and I've I've sort of lost my mind being at an aquarium, you know, before like looking at a tank of fish of various kinds of fish and thinking like, wow, I wonder what it must like to you know be a sergeant major, you know, just choose some species, what it must like to be this kind of fish, and then like taking another moment and then thinking, no, I wonder what it's like to be that one, yes, and how that. You know, I think especially with fish, people don't give fish a lot of credit. But um, I really enjoyed reading in in your octopus book about the guy who's very attuned to their to their um, sort of signals of how they were doing, whether mm. it was the color of their skin that they were changing Scott subtly, or, or could smell them, yeah. smell their. Uh, he could smell their stress. Stress. That's yeah. Yes, and he yeah. could look at the sparkle in their eye and know that they felt well. Yeah, and if if their their colors were a little dim, he knew that they might not feel well. He was a he's an amazing guy. We're we're still close friends, and um, he runs the freshwater gallery at the New England Aquarium, and he is a fish savant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. It's it's a lot to think about, and I think you know that I don't have a I don't have an issue with thinking fish are. Uh, of uh, lower a lower caste or something like that, but I think a lot of people it's easy to relegate them because they they're they're harder to read. Exactly, you know, I guess kind of like reptiles. You know, they don't do a lot of facial uh, emoting, so yes, they're kind of there's, exactly. There's, a, there's like, well, I don't know what's going on with you, so yeah, maybe there's nothing. Well, there's a fabulous book by Jonathan Balcom called "What a Fish Knows," mm-hmm. and I recommend I recommend you read that. Yeah, your listeners would enjoy that too. Um, they 
They could be quite emotional. Fish can be very attached to the people in their lives. Some fish live for a very long time. Koi, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, some koi, there's videos of koi that like to be cuddled. And normally, if you have a slime coat, you would not want to be cuddled because it wrecks your slime coat. But even though it's dangerous to be cuddled, and the, the people who cuddle their koi are, are careful not to wreck the slime coat of the koi. And the koi like it. It's so endearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think about it in terms of, um, I, I don't like to get real political about things. It's not really my, um, not where I feel drawn. And if I have a certain choice that I make, I don't try to, you know, put that on other people. But something that I think about and I've thought about more I is referring to especially in the in the sense of how we relate to animals in the way that uh most people eat them Hmm. and that there's a real sort of um let me think about how i want to say this some people grow up with experiencing killing and death a lot like you might work grow up on a farm or in certain or in a hunting community or something like that where you're used to that process and you're used to the flow of things and then there's a lot of us that don't participate directly in that. And I think that I find it a bit strange how uh, we refer to, like, I'm eating chicken or I'm eating beef, I'm eating pork, when, to my mind, well, it's not even to my mind, I think this is an objective truth, you're not eating a category, well, simultaneously, that you're eating a category, you're also eating an individual. Mm-hmm. And if you spend any time with a with a chicken coop or a group of chickens or a group of pigs or cows, you'll quickly realize that they all have personalities and that they are very much individual creatures. And yes. so I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say here. Only that it's something that I've thought about a fair amount and that it's uh it's a little bit confusing to me, I think. And I, I like that. I like the idea of and, and even hunting, like I'm not against hunting. I have no problem. But the fact is that at the same time that you're having this experience and then probably eating the animal that you've killed, that is an animal within a community. And it is has children or parents or, or siblings and all these things that like and a mate and a mate. Like it's not a, yeah. it's not a um, it's not an individual at the same time that it is, you right, know, it's, right. it's completely inextricably linked to so much else. And, and I don't know, I, I guess th- those are things that I haven't experienced much. I've never been a hunter and I don't, um, I don't slaughter animals for food or anything like that. And, uh, I like to think that I would approach it differently <laughs> than well, I see most of it going I, on. I know a man, well, actually he's dead now, but, um, I had a, a good friend who used to be a trapper and, this is what he did for a living, and um, his name was John Coolish. He's a legendary person. Well, one of the things he trapped for their pelts were otters. Mm. And one day, he trapped an otter just like any other, but then he happened to see the mate come back and call as if its heart was broken for that lost mate and came back again and again to the site of the trap, and he quit trampet trapping right then and I stopped eating meat like 35 years ago and when um, 
at a, a, at a time when the only meat you pretty much could get was factory farmed meat. I mean, today you can get animals, um, animals that are uh, farmed in a more humane way and killed in a more humane way, but I'm still glad that I don't eat any of them because the taste in my mouth, no matter how good, can't be as glorious to me as the life of that animal is to itself. Their lives are precious and they love their lives and there's no appetite of mine that's worth snuffing out someone else's entire life. It just isn't. I mean, maybe to other people it's different. And and you know, I I don't mean to judge either in yeah. that a lot of my animal friends are hunters. Of course, yeah. You know, um I have a friend who's a cheetah and that she is not eating rice and beans, yeah. <laughs> you know, it has to kill everything. He has to kill everything he eats with his face. And that's a dangerous way to live your life. And I, and I respect it, but I'll also say the cheetah does not have any choice in the matter. Right. Yeah. 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 There is uh we definitely have the luxury. I won't say we all do because people have different situations, but, many of us have the luxury of that choice and it's interesting right it's an interesting Although, you know, creature that we are <laughs> well, when i travel um sometimes it's really weird um i did a, a book for kids um uh on snow leopards and this was in mongolia and so uh, when when you travel in mongolia the the folks that live in the country are nomadic mm-hmm. and whenever anyone comes to your gear you're you welcome them by basically a barnyard holocaust they yeah. want to kill everything for you they're so excited that you're there but i had to have the translator explain i don't eat anything but leaves well you know i do eat fruits and vegetables and stuff but the right. way it came out was she eats nothing but leaves yeah. and in mongolia you cannot do that because right. you've got those long winters and what they eat over there is milk and meat. And maybe they have a potato and maybe they might have an onion now and then, but they eat milk and meat. And they looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And there was no way to explain to them why I did that. So the translator had to say, oh, she has a terrible disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 This is, I think the only other uh, question I want to ask you that is, potentially um controversial in any way but i'm curious to know especially having been so exposed as you have to so many animals in their wild environments and as well as um interacting with them within zoos and and aquariums what is your sort of prevailing view of of the value versus um detriment of 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 those sort of captive captive uh, environments well if you're looking at it from just an absolutely pure philosophical view um we have no right to keep animals in captivity i mean why are why are they in jail they did nothing wrong who who died and made us boss yeah. unfortunately we are the boss of this planet right now or we're acting like we are we have covered the globe like some bacterial disease. We're just everywhere. There's way too many of us for this planet, and we run things. And all kinds of animals are endangered, and to save them, we can't ignore the fact that we're the ones in the driver's seat. Zoos are are now 
a big part of the effort to restore endangered species. And there's a number of species, including the California condor, which I've just written a book about that's coming out next year, that would be dead, extinct in the wild forever if it weren't for zoos raising them, protecting them, and then reintroducing them to the wild. This is not at all the only species. Also, animals in their wild habitat often have miserable lives because (laughs) of all the people around them. Octopus is one example. Um, Octopuses can be legally fried alive in oil just about anywhere in the world. They fishermen take take them out of the sea and cut off their limbs while they're still alive and throw them back in as bait. So what would you rather be? The wild octopus who is pretty certainly going to get eaten by something or the lucky octopus that is living in an interesting aquarium with things to do, people to see, um, and in in the wild, you know, an octopus lays a hundred. A, a giant Pacific octopus lays a hundred thousand eggs. Only two of those are going to survive long enough to reproduce. Yeah. Every single other one of those is going to get eaten alive by something, whether it's a, a shark or a fish or a bird or or a fisherman. So when you look at it that way, for the individual who is living in a good aquarium where there's cool stuff to do, you know, not bored and has good veterinary care and good food, that's great. In the wild, octopuses spend between 70 to 90% of their time hiding from predators. And that's not the case when they don't have to hide from predators. They have much more interesting lives, actually, in a good aquarium where People are interacting with them. They have stuff to see. They have toys, etc. So in some cases, an animal can be having a much better life in captivity than what we've left them with in the wild. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. It's a, it's, there's a lot of nuance. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty, I think it's a pretty hard thing to take a black and white stance on like most things. Um, luckily. <laughs> I know. And it's funny. I get, you know, I get a number of people who write me and say, how can, you, how can you write about having an octopus in an aquarium? And I just want to say, well, look at their natural history and put yourself in the place of that animal. You know? And now there's some animals that I think it's very difficult to give them a good life in a zoo or mm-hmm. an aquarium. Yeah. Um, it's probably very difficult to give an elephant a good yeah. life in yeah. captivity. That's the first because, thing I was thinking of, too. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. But again, I mean, dolphins... I mean, however, if you're looking at the individual, does that mean that we should kidnap all the dolphins that are in Oceania and dump them into the ocean? Well, people have done that. And if those dolphins were raised in captivity and they're dumped in the ocean, they almost certainly have no idea what to do. It's it's yeah. like taking you know you you go into a classroom of first graders, realize they're captive. And then loose them back into the wild, dump them naked and afraid onto the savannas of Africa where we evolved. Well, you know, that's not going to go well for that class of first graders. And the same is is true. You've got to look at the individual's circumstance. Yeah. When I was in college in Florida, I found a little baby. I thought it was a mouse at the time, but it, it was a rat, a little baby rat that was outside of the dorm. And it just looked, I thought it was dead, but it wasn't. And it was white, and um, so I figured that it was, uh, you know, bred to be fed to snakes or something, because mm. a lot of people um, in that 
dorm had had pet snakes and things like that and um and it was an interesting little journey for me because i don't like the idea of ownership of animals i i try to refer to like when people have a cat that lives in the same house as i always it's their cat friend or their dog Mm -hmm. friend i try to use that language because it just doesn't sit well with me to think of owning something that's so right it's like slavery (laughs) yeah you know yeah owning another living soul yeah it doesn't make sense to me so so i went through this this process of like okay well this rat my best guess is and (laughs) evidence would show that it doesn't have wilderness skills i mean it's got its head buried in the corner it's its fur is all wet and matted and it's on its way out now if i intervene i can probably give this security enough to thrive however i also really don't want to be consider myself you know the the god figure or the owner of this of this animal and so my compromise was that I basically made him a series of uh, homes and and provided food and all, everything, all that kind of stuff for him with the uh, agreement that he could always leave. So the, the, the enclosures never were, were, you know, snapped shut or anything like that. <laughs> so he always had a way out. Oh, how great. Um, and that was, the, that was the way that I could like sleep at night or <laughs> figure out how to deal with this dilemma in my head of not having dominion over him, but also realizing that because he ended up in an environment that he was unsuited for, that I did have the opportunity to extend his life to the best of my, you know, ability and best guess scenario. Um, but it is something I, I can never really totally wrap my head around, you know. Well, what like, happened to him? Well, <laughs> that's a really long story, but um, it's uh, he he came with me up to the east up the east coast, and for a while he lived um, with my brother in New York. Oh yeah, this I just told this story on the moth actually. Oh, you did! <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and 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 then after I don't know a year or so, I came back down to get him when I had because I was. Uh, I was away. I was away for the summer leading a a, um, backpacking trip. And so I couldn't care for him. So my brother took care of him. That was one time when he was, you know, locked up when he was in in New York. Everyone in New York is locked up, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. And I couldn't impose this whole philosophy on everyone that I was just grateful that they were willing to take care of him. (laughs) Right. Um, And then so I, and then in the fall, I moved up to Burlington, Vermont. And I had, um, I lived in a big house with a bunch of people and I, I kept finding progressively bigger cages like on the side of the street and stuff and cleaning them up and just I had this big triple decker thing oh, and a big room and but it was the same thing where he was none of you know the doors were all open mm-hmm. so if he wanted to be in there and he wanted to stay with with me in the same room and be buddies then great and then <laughs> so the next spring my my I went away again and my friends took care of him and and then I went on a, I used to work out in Wisconsin at this camp out in Wisconsin. And my friend and I biked out there as a fundraiser. And it was just shy of 1,200 miles. And, and, and so my friends in Burlington were still taking care of this rat. And my friend texted me and he said, I've got something to tell you. You might want to be sitting down for this. And, and this is my best buddy, Trav. And, and we you know always sharing stuff that we think is really funny and so i'm thinking it's like gonna be this hilarious thing and 
And so we're 20 miles from, from finishing this epic bike ride and pretty, pretty pumped about that. And I, so I sit down, I have this crappy phone and with a tiny little screen and he sends me this picture and there's the one person standing with a, in the street with a, like a snow shovel, another person standing next to him. And then between them is like a, f- a foot round white circle, a white and red circle with it's it's cruel that i'm laughing oh, so much with no. four little feet sticking oh out in each direction god. Oh my because god. they had jesus they had put him out on the porch so he could be outside because most of his life he had to be inside oh. but continuing to honor that philosophy but when he had decided to go for it was the same day that they were doing road work oh and so no. he was probably almost literally, literally steamrolled Oh my and god. It oh. was like the saddest. I really everybody everyone who even thinks they didn't like rats loved this rat. Oh, like he I'm was sure just so rats endearing. Full of personality. Oh yeah. And they're super smart and they're loving they yeah. laugh. They laugh yeah. Jack Pansnap. Yeah. Um uh, found out that they laugh just like people do in the same circumstance. We yeah. just don't hear it. Oh my god, I'm sorry. That's I know, I'm so awful. sorry. And then oh my god. and so I was so sad and then I was like, Well, you know, this is what this is what we signed up for. You know, this was the agreement that I made with him, even though he couldn't sign off on it. Right. That if he wanted to leave, that was his choice. And I, it, so it was like a funny well, sort of it's, thing. It, it, the point, the point is that we have altered the world so much that if you'd been, if you'd been living with a rat friend 2000 years ago, and he had run out of your house. He would be in some something resembling a rat's natural habitat, but there's so little of their natural world left. Yeah. So I mean, in a way, it's almost like letting them run out out of the space station onto the foreign planet that they yeah. know nothing about. I mean, rats. How did they? He wouldn't know about steamrollers. No. I mean, oh, that's. Oh yeah. my God, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, because presumably he grew up in a cage in an indoor facility with a bunch of other rats in sawdust and that's probably all he knew. you know it's like growing up in a bomb shelter with no reading material you right know? it's like right exactly <laughs> but then you know i think of folks that i have known who are living close to the earth um pygmies that i've met in um zaire well it was zaire now it's called congo they they lived in these lovely little shelters made out of leaves and um, at that point, they had gotten some Western clothes, but um, they they pretty much found their food. There was no need for money. Um, there was they didn't have to heat their houses. They had their their little shelters were so small that if you put several people in there, and plus they're living in Equatorial Africa, it was warm enough. Everything you need was there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you dumped them in the middle of New York City, they wouldn't know what to do any more than if you just dumped, uh, you know, a, a city kid in the in the in middle their, of Equatorial Africa. Right, yeah. And so many animals, I think, are stuck in that terrible predicament in, in our human-polluted world. I mean, even the ocean, the vast endless ocean there's going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean by the year 2050 yeah that's they're not adapted to that yeah you know a sea turtle sees a plastic bag and thinks it's a delicious jellyfish 
Um, the world isn't what we were all created to live in this habitat that we've destroyed. We've altered it in most places beyond all recognition. Yeah. And I think that what we owe to to animals has changed because of that. You know what I mean? Our, yeah, our, you take on a per- certain responsibility. Yeah. 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 Or we do. I don't mean you, you know, meaning anyone else other than all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. And it's interesting. There was um, there was just an article by Alexander Horowitz in the Times yesterday about spaying and neutering dogs, for example. And, you know, one is urged to spay and neuter their dog to prevent pet overpopulation. And overpopulation is a huge problem because there's tons of, of strays out there starving to death and covered with sores from terrible diseases and being hit by cars and that's that's no good but she brings up the point like well you're de-sexing these animals you're removing their organs from them and she doesn't say this directly but what if you did that to people they'd be having a fit yeah but what's the most overpopulated species on the planet she doesn't bring this up either. I'm I'm the one saying that. It's us. Yeah. But no one would dream of doing that. So, yeah, everything has, has become way more complicated because we have changed the world beyond all recognition. What do you think is the main thing that it takes for someone, for the average human being, let's say in a, uh, a fairly disconnected from the natural world, culture to have compassion for animals or what's the main thing that sort of i'm i'm imagining that i mean even having read in in the octopus book soul of an octopus that there's certain times when that switch flips when people go from just ew like ooh, from a monster to a weight mm-hmm. and what what do you think do you think there's a theme that sort of switch flips that switch or like what have you seen that gets people to connect in a way that they normally wouldn't uh, either uh, wouldn't occur to them or that they wouldn't just be exposed to thinking about? Being able to see the animal as an individual mm-hmm. really matters. And for most of us, the dog and cat is the gateway drug. Yeah. You know, because we all know our dogs and cats are individuals. But there's plenty of people who pamper their dogs and cats and, and um, you know, go out and throw trash in the ocean and blast away at elephants to take their teeth to sell for the ivory. Um, So there's a second step in there, too, and that is going from knowing the individual in your home to opening your heart to the fact that all animals think and feel and know and love their lives. And it's a hard thing to do for some people, I think, because we like being in control. We like being able to eat our hamburgers. I mean, so many people say, oh, I don't want to hear about factory farming. It's going to make me not enjoy my hamburger. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of don't know what to do with that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. so your enjoyment of your hamburger is more important than the lives of one billion animals. Okay, I think I can see your little tiny black speck of a heart. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, and that is not meant to say that, you know, becoming vegetarian is the only way to honor animals and that only vegetarians like animals or anything like that. No, of course not. You know, there's there's so many ways. None of our hands are clean, even if we want to think they are. Oh, my gosh. And on the other hand, there's so many ways that all of us can honor the earth. And one of them is eating less meat. One of them might be driving an electric or a hybrid vehicle. One of them is, is volunteering for a, for a shelter or conservation organization. One of them is limiting the size of our own families. One of them be, would be a, a beach cleanup. Another would be writing a... Ch- I mean, and so on and so on and so on. There's so many ways that we can try together to honor and heal the earth. And I think it's it's not productive to say, well, this is the one way that works. There's only one right answer. There's so many right answers and we need to use as many of them as we can and find the ones that are most comfortable for everybody. You know, I mean, I I don't like being involved. I vote absolutely, but I don't like being involved in politics. I really hate it. I, yeah. I did man the phones one time for a candidate and loathed it, loathed <laughs> it. It was horrible. Um, I would have rather had a sharp stick in the eye, but um, I can do lots of other things. And many people do see a politics as, as a way to, to speak up for animals and are great at it. They love manning the phones and they're terrific at it. Hmm. So, you know, to, to each their own talent. And there's not one single talent that can't be brought to bear on saving this planet. Whether you're good at money, whether you're good at art, whether you're a talented speaker, whether you know you're a terrific chef, whether you know, doesn't doesn't matter. Whatever talent you have, you can bring it to bear for good. Uh, yeah, I want to like almost pause and just let that like settle. I think that's such an incredibly beautiful statement that whatever whatever it is that you do, I'm trying to remember your exact words. Whatever you know that you can bear to that it can be used to save the world. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask if you were, um, I think you might've answered that question within that statement, but the question I was about to ask, but I was thinking about how a lot of us, I mean, I'm sort, sort, sort of of the belief that we're meant to be in small groups and living off the land and that kind of, you know, living as, as, as animals, as human animals, that that's kind of what we're designed for. And that having this, having this global awareness and having, you know, the ability to get the newspaper and the um, news through all these different outlets of all this stuff going on, even 200 miles away, let alone 3000, like uh, is probably beyond what we've really evolved to be able to sort of make sense of. Yeah. It's gone so fast. Yeah. It's gone so, so, so fast. Like yeah. climate change, it, you know, there has been climate change over the the ages of the earth, but but not a hundred years, not fifty, and we have brought such fast changes. No one, including us, can completely adapt to it. This is why I think we're going crazy. Yeah, yeah no, I, I I agree. <laughs> and so I guess my question from that was, you as a as a individual have been able to go into so many places around the world, and especially places that are. Um, vulnerable and sensitive to changes and that includes how it affects animals and how it affects ecosystems how it affects the people in these different places and all this stuff and are you are you hopeful i mean how are you feeling on a daily basis about sort of the the grand scheme of things 
Well, I'll tell you what gives me hope. I mean, two things. One is that we all do have a lot of power, and we can make a choice many times every day with everything we do to help or hurt the earth. And the other thing that gives me hope is kids who I know. One of them, her name is Heidi Bell. She's 11 years old. I met her when she was, I think, nine. I was speaking at her school, and she, I was talking about a number of things, including octopus, and she came up to me, and um, she loves sea animals. She loved octopus. So we became friends, and she wanted to know what could she do. And we talked, and um, octopuses don't have a particular charity that is helping them. But sea turtles do, a number of them. And one of them is right at the New England Aquarium. There's a sea turtle hospital. So she immediately went out, and she has raised thousands of dollars. And 11, she's now 11. She just delivered another check for like $800 to the sea turtle hospital at the New England Aquarium. And she got to go to Cape Cod to see the release of one of the turtles that she had met at the sea turtle hospital, a turtle named Munchkin, and saw this sick, this sick turtle get well under the care of these people and watched her be released into the sea and the sea pick her up and carry mm. her home. The kid's 11. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how can you not be hopeful when you know someone like that? And there's a number of kids who I know who are doing amazing things. I have another friend named Isabel Goodrich, and uh, she is now 16. She just turned 16, and she's very involved in the whole climate change thing. And um, I, I, I have another friend um, who brought to his, his town the legislation to outlaw plastic straws in his town because they get stuck in the alimentary canals and, and noses of sea animals. This, this is a kid, you know, not old enough to vote, yeah. not old enough to drive. But look at the power they have. And what I say about kids is that they are not just the leaders of tomorrow. They are the leaders of today. Yeah. And that's giving me a lot of hope. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, in large part I was, i've been thinking i was thinking recently about how there's a lot of uh cynicism and that a lot of people have a sort of uh apocalyptic worldview right now and i don't fault them for that i mean it's pretty easy to you know understand how you could come to that 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 conclusion or attitude um and I was thinking what the image that came to me was, uh, do you remember the movie Titanic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the image that came to you was, uh, when the, when the ship is going down, sorry, spoiler alert. And, yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and there's the string quartet who, yeah. who just they they look around, all the lifeboats are full the boats clearly going down the waters, you know, 40 degrees at best, probably colder than that. And, the the way that they decide to deal with the time is to set up their chairs and just start playing mm-hmm. and make beautiful music for the rest of the people who are there and for themselves and it's and so I've thought about that how it's sort of easy to go um, it's easy to go into that space and like especially with this podcast uh, I'm we're definitely trying to celebrate things that people are doing in the world that are 
to my judgment, you know, as whoever, whatever I can come up with in my own brain that I think is contributing to the beautification and, and everything of the world. And I was sort of thinking about how someone might be like, well, what about all the other stuff? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I'm not naive and I'm not blind to that. Uh, and, and I deal with enough sort of difficult stuff in my own head and, and in my own life. But I, I think at this point, even if, even if things become somehow, you know, intractably just landslide into whatever the next chapter is that we can't, can't foresee, I'd rather be one of those people playing, yes. <laughs> playing the instrument than, than someone, whatever the alternative is, what just a, giving what a up good or, point. or what a good point. If you're adding to the beauty in the world, to the love in the world, to the thought in the world, your work is your prayer. Your life is your prayer. And when we pray, we don't know what's going to happen with that prayer, how it's going to be answered. I mean, maybe the answer to what we want is no, but we have to utter that prayer, which is our, which is our lives. And I feel that way about my books, too. I mean, one of my favorite books was um, Journey of the Pink Dolphins. It's an, Am- an Amazon mm-hmm. quest. Yeah. And that book came out in the year 2000. Here we are in 2019, and the Amazon is burning. And do you know what the last words of my book were? No. And in I the have... western sky, the Amazon is burning. Oh. It's, it's, it's burning again. Yeah. Does that mean my, my, my book had no value? Because here, 19 years later, the Amazon is burning still and even worse. That doesn't necessarily... That doesn't necessarily follow. I'm still grateful that I wrote that book as a as a testament. And I often think, you know, I I'm 61, and um, I was not really old enough to take part in the civil rights protests in in the 1960s and early 70s. I was too too little. I admire those people so much. When those protests were going on, people were ge- were getting killed for protesting. Mm-hmm. And people of color were, were just getting whacked over the head left and right. I mean, they still are, but even worse, way worse then. And when you're inside it, you don't know how it's going to come out. Well, we made a lot of progress thanks to those brave civil rights workers. And I'm sorry that I, I couldn't be part of that huge movement then, that monumental movement then. But what I can do is what I'm doing now and be part of this movement to save the earth. Mm -hmm. The string quartet playing as the ship goes down. There's still always value in beauty. There's always value in love. There's always value in praise, you know. And if that's all that we have to offer, we should offer it. And the other thing is, goodness sakes, you know, if, if, if we don't do anything to bring about change there's zero chance that the world is going to be saved right (laughs) right probably i mean yeah it seems like pretty likely it's not going to go super well right well we have to i mean we're never going to move the needle if we don't try anything yeah it seems that way yeah oh geez (laughs) anyways that's a heavy that's heavy material but yeah it's it's also the reality that we have at other points in being alive, there wasn't this sort of overarching constant, you know, of like, well, also, 
planet's in serious serious trouble. Yeah, we didn't even know we were on a planet for a really yeah, long yeah. time. Yeah, that sounds nice, man. I, I would well, like. I wouldn't mind that. I don't think. Um, yeah. Have you ever heard of? I, I was thinking about this when I was reading today. Have you ever heard that This American Life uh, episode about the guy who? Lived as a badger for a few weeks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. He wrote a book about this. Yeah. He ate worms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People thought he was a nut. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. I thought that was great. That's it. I just wanted to know if you'd heard it or not. I oh, thought yeah. you would so enjoy it. If yeah. Not, but, um, you know, I mean, to him, the, I think he got a lot closer to knowing what it's like to be a badger than yeah. someone who doesn't eat worms and, and go underground. But he also learned that he can't really know what it's like to be a badger. But he's come closer, yeah. closer than I ever will. Yeah, that's a, that's sort of a theme that I was I've been thinking and and your work brought up a lot especially with with talking about octopuses of and and I you cited somebody's uh talking about a bat and who who was the I don't know if it was a poem or a Nigel piece, Nigel I think there was someone talking about how like no matter like a bat's experience no matter how much we try to understand it is still a separate thing that's you know, it's, it's right, like, right. Cause they have ecolocation yeah. abilities and we do not, yeah. and we cannot know what that is like. And we, yeah. That, and yeah. Um, a, a number of philosophers have, have looked at, can you really know what it's like to be another species? But can you really even know what it's like to be another person? Right. We can't. I mean, I, I think most children even have that experience of, of realizing that I point to this color and say red, and you point to that color and say red, but are you really seeing the same thing? Right. And how could you ever know? That's right. You <laughs> yeah. can't. You can't. Yeah. I mean, we've just agreed that we call that red, but it might look like my green. Your red might look like my green. Probably, probably doesn't because we do understand rods and cones in the eyes and stuff like that. But you can begin to approach some of these things. For example, you know, the octopus, such an alien creature. We can't imagine what it's like to taste with all of your skin, even your eyelids. We can't imagine to have muscles that can just slide through a tiny opening so that a hundred-pound creature can slide through a hole smaller than, than an orange. Right. But we do have tongues. And an octopus's muscles are more like the muscles in our tongues than our biceps. And with our tongues, that is our skin that we can taste with. So we can get a little closer to yeah. know. Only we had suckers on our tongues. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so awesome? Oh, my gosh. Suckers that are so pliable that they can untie surgical silk, you know, and so strong that a single three-inch sucker can lift 30 pounds. Yeah. That, I mean, wow. But, I, you know, I was thinking about... Today, writing a, another story, um, I was thinking about friendship, and I, I definitely feel like I have made friends with octopus. They were friends. Oh, yeah. So I looked up, you know, well, what, this sounds so lame that I had to look it up, but, you know, what is a friendship, really? Mm. What's, and so there's all kinds of, like, advice about how to be a good friend and studies of, of people that have a lot of friends and but the real definitions of what is a friend and what causes friendship to happen, not everyone agrees, but generally, 
you have a mutual interest. You have some kind of proximity to that person or, or animal. Uh, you just kind of enjoy each other's company. And your life feels enriched when you are with them. And I'll tell you, every octopus I knew ticked all of those boxes. Yeah. A lot of people say that friends typically share a very common background. You know, like, I'm a wasp, you're a wasp. No, no, I meant a real wasp. No, I meant the other kind of wasp. Or, you know, you live on my street. And that certainly was not the case with me and the, the octopus. But most of my friends that I treasure the most have opened a whole new world for me. I don't want to just gaze into the mirror at somebody who's just like me all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think of the Yes song. Uh, don't surround yourself with yourself. Oh. <laughs> you <know? laughs> See all good people. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. It's a chess metaphor in that one, but but it, that's what I think of. Yeah. 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 And you feel so enriched when, you know, one of your friends can change color and shape and shoot ink and has venom like a snake. You know, that's so enriching yeah. to know someone like that. Yeah. And I think that the octopuses that I've known, we've had a mutual interest in playing with toys and mutual curiosity about each other. uh, Definitely every octopus that I've known was just as curious about me as I was about them. And you can feel it and you can see it. And I'm not projecting that because they're exploring it with their suckers. Right. Yeah. And I think the more friendships that we have with others who are not like us, the more whole we feel and the more whole we keep the earth hmm. yeah i yeah i think it's so fascinating uh hearing about your friendships making different friends with these different octopuses in your book um and there's probably been some since then i'm imagining mm-hmm. um, there was one named after me at new england really Aquarium. yeah oh. her name was Sai, <laughs> and it was great because you'd hear people say like oh Sai is so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so i liked hearing that she was beautiful oh she was a lovely octopus she was a really friendly active octopus too but they're all different and you know one day maybe i'll meet an octopus that just doesn't doesn't like me. And I got to tell you, I, I did not expect to, um, to be able to read octopuses at all. I didn't know what to expect when mm-hmm. I stuck my hands into that tank the very first time in March of 2011. Um, I had no idea. I was just open to whatever the octopus would show me, if anything. And, but boy, as soon as I saw that octopus, her name was Athena... Her eyes swivel in its socket and lock onto my face. And she turned red with excitement. And she oozed over from her lair. And her arms came boiling up out of the water to, to meet mine. And I couldn't help it. I just plunged my hands and arms into the freezing cold water and couldn't wait to meet her. And uh, it, it was amazing. I, you, you expect for people to react to you. You expect for dogs to react to you. You expect to be able to read like a, a, a horse or, or a parrot or, or even a lizard. But an octopus. I was not right. ready for yeah. how, uh, how well and how accurately we could read each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just take visually, it's like, what do we have in common? You know, I guess we both have eyes, but yours have these weird horizontal pupils, which if, if I read correctly, are they sort of like on a, um, what's the word, a gyroscope? That yeah, they're always they, horizontal? Yeah, they always stay the same. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that must be bizarre in its own. Yeah, it was really cool. Way. It was really cool. But yeah, as you like look at you're like, well, I mean, I guess we both have skin, you know. But yeah. past that, it's like, what right, else do we, right. have, what could we possibly have in common? You have a beak, and you know? I know you have a beak in your armpits, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, you can shoot ink, and you have venom, and my God, it's it's really like an alien, like you met an alien. Did you see the movie Arrival? Yes, did you, I did. Yeah. Well, Very liked, much like octopuses. They yeah. were septopuses, weren't they? I think so. They had seven yeah. seven arms, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I loved it for a number of reasons. Um, I, I Again, I don't want to spoil it for listeners who haven't seen it. The, the main human character chose the life that she had even knowing the pain that was ahead. Mm-hmm. I, and um, that that stayed with me quite a bit. Yeah. And just what, also what occurred to me why I kept thinking of it when I was listening to your book as well is like that um, that urge to connect with this thing that seemed so alien. Yes. And, and, and the fact that many other people were like, oh, it's trying to kill us. It's trying right. to kill. And man, we are that way about almost every wild animal. Yeah. Whenever I talk to people about my experiences with... You know, one of my books I worked with in a pit with 18,000 snakes. Another one of my <laughs> my books I handled wild tarantulas. I mean, I've I've written about man-eating tigers that swim out after your boat and get on board and eat you. I have swum in the Amazon for, you know, hours on end with electric eels and piranhas. And, uh, you know, nothing bad has ever happened to me in any of these cases. Yeah. No animal except a mosquito has ever, ever hurt me. I'm an ant. An ant. I've been bitten by ants. But um, many people just think that the world is out there waiting to hurt you. And it's not. It's really not. The, the universe, I, I have, even when it feels like everything is going wrong, I, I, one of the talks that I sometimes give um, to writers about nonfiction is called um, When Things Go Horribly Wrong. Because when you're doing nonfiction, frequently things do go horribly wrong. And I've had a ton of things go horribly wrong. I've had books fall through. I've had, I've, when I first showed up in the Amazon, the very like first day, full day I was in the Amazon, my idea for my book, which was to follow the pink dolphins on their migration that I had read that they did, fell through because... They don't migrate, it turns out. And the whole book proposal was built on this, but I still wrote this book, and it remains one of my very favorite books. So um, this talk about how things go horribly wrong is is basically we can't help but kind of have a mindset of how you expect things are going to be. But to the degree that it's possible, let's set that aside and just just go for the ride. You know, just trust the universe is going to show us what we're going to learn and accept the role of the, of the student. Hmm. I, I recently had an entire book fall through, which was kind of a financial disaster, but turned out to be a huge blessing because I ended up being back home and not in remote Peru when a family tragedy struck and I needed to be here Mm. and I felt when I was in the when I was in the field and everything was going wrong I felt like oh man you know this this is just terrible I'm having terrible luck 
I must be a bad person. Surely I'm being punished. And when I came home and this, and I was so grateful that I was home when this other thing happened, I realized, no, I was in the the loving hands of the universe protecting me from the disaster that it would have been if I'd been in this remote field site and not at home when I could deal with this, this tragedy. Yeah. yeah. So I realize usually quite quickly how even a disaster is a blessing and that we aren't driving the whole thing you Mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah i think there was a story about i think it's carl jung people he would say that like when people came up to him i got this promotion and everything went the way i wanted you say oh well sorry to hear that Ah. and then they say when they came to him all you know pissed off and bummed and i got fired and he goes oh that's great news i can't wait to see what comes up next oh (laughs) that's great what doors open as a result yeah it's so easy to get uh to just yeah decide ahead of time that something is so preferable to something else it's right like, who are we yeah right. <laughs> i've done it so much in my life i'm the guiltiest of anyone Boy, well me too and, but you know many people think that animals are all out there to bite us and scare us <laughs> and eat us and not true at all one of my books about great white sharks uh, that i did for for young readers and Great white sharks see us all the time and do not bother us. And now that we've got so many great white sharks in Cape Cod, there was a recent video of surfers and great white sharks were feet away from them. But the sharks knew they were surfers, knew they were not seals. They don't want to eat the surfers. They do want to eat the seals. And they they were perfectly safe the whole time. Yeah. It's it's there's there's a funny thing that I've experienced which I don't assume to think is universal at all. But there's something about seeing something in reality versus theory that sort of quells some of my fear. Like I was thinking like last night I was on my parents' property and they have a teepee and I slept in the teepee and I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard this really strange sound. It sounded like kind of like a scream. And that, because I was just coming out of sleep, I thought that, and it was windy, so it was like, maybe it was a weird, you know, tree moving. But then immediately, the other place was well. People always talk about how mountain lions have a really weird scream, you know, when they're <laughs> this or that, and that's where my mind went immediately. And like I've, I've so much of my life has been like putting fears. Like I'm not afraid of sleeping in the woods anymore. In most places, you know. Like, a lot of these things that I thought were so threatening, I'm just like, that's not worth putting a bunch of, like, extra stress into my <laughs> into my system about. But I was, I found myself just last night laying there like, oh, man, I don't know that much about mountain lions. They seem so unpredictable. I think that's, like, why, it's going to smell me. Why wouldn't it come in and eat me? Like, what's it got to lose? <laughs> you know, I'm like, and this morning I was like, wow, it's interesting that I'm still have that sort of reaction in the middle of the night. But then I remember, like, years ago I was in Peru and we were on trek and it was snowy and there was mountain lion tracks along the trail ahead of us where we were going so it's like but i wasn't afraid at all and so i saw these tracks is like i had the sense of no we did not see a mountain lion but i guarantee you at least one one saw saw us (laughs) and and i think there was little baby tracks too and or young young ones but i didn't have a i wasn't afraid at all having that exposure i remember like another time when i was in mexico and we saw shark fins swimming out in the water, you know, in the morning. And, 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 and 
on one part of the, I was, it was the speech place, and then it was like a lagoon. And in the morning, the crocodiles would swim out of the lagoon, right into the oh, ocean, yeah. and and eat fish, you know, eat fish and stuff. And both of those things are terrifying on one hand, but then we'd go swimming off that same beach every day. You know, it was like, and I and I didn't. It was like something about knowing there was some sort of trust in actually having some some experience even if it wasn't tactile but just like mm-hmm. even the visual one i don't know somehow somehow quelled some of that fear yeah uh, but i'm still kind of afraid of mountain lions i don't know what's up with them <laughs> but well i can understand i mean if you're jogging for example that might be a yeah. nice stuff but there's not i mean it's not like out west where there's lots of mountain lions right. out here but so. then but even when i've been out west i don't i'm not more afraid of them you know mm-hmm. it's like the yeah, same thing yeah, it's like yeah. i might be more smart about how i act but like i'm not yeah i try not to live in that space <laughs> it's not so much fun no it, it is funny you know when you're looking when you're specifically looking for an animal like a a, a tiger or a lion or a leopard um and you see it you don't think like, oh no, there's a, right. <laughs> there's a leopard. <laughs> you think, oh look, there's a leopard. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I think someone is. Oh, someone has just given me a package. Oh, nice. Yeah, if most things like that that want to get you, they're not going to let you know ahead of time. <laughs> That's no, not really their no, mo. <laughs> I'm not worried about that either. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, I would have thought it'd be fun just to talk about a few. Um, fun facts about octopuses that people might not know oh there's some sure. of them that definitely came up but i'm I'm curious what you would what you would think might be fun for people to to know that they wouldn't um i think most people don't know where the octopus's mouth is that it's in their armpits and that their mouth is a beak like a parrot mm-hmm. and most people don't know that octopuses has venom um they're not all deadly venom. There's over 250 different species of octopus. Some are deadly. The blue ring octopus's bite will kill you, and there's no anti-venom at all for that. Um, the giant Pacific octopus uh, has a neurotoxic flesh-dissolving venom, which is no fun. But yeah. they, I've been with two people. I've had my hands in the tank with the octopus when the octopus was biting two people. And the octopus chose not to inject the venom so it's entirely according to the octopus's wish to inject the venom or not um most people don't know how dexterous those suckers are or how strong yeah but um people who have tried to sew up surgical incisions on octopuses have discovered that the surgical silk is just at the bottom of the tank in the morning because the animals use their suckers to untie the knots in the surgical silk. Um, Even a small octopus like the common octopus, not the giant Pacific that could theoretically get to be 300 pounds, but the small common octopus that that people uh, are are famous for eating fried uh, over in Greece... um, that octopus, although fairly small, can exert a quarter ton of force. Whoa. And yet, as strong as they are, and when you consider all the rotten things that people do to octopuses, octopuses almost never bother people. And people bother octopuses a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think people would be surprised to know how emotional octopuses are, how, um, how playful they are, that 
at aquaria that keep octopuses, there are enrichment manuals to help the people who keep the octopuses to keep the octopuses entertained. And that octopuses like the same kinds of, of toys that our children do. They love Legos. They love Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> they love pulling things apart and putting them together. And another thing that very few people know is how short an octopus's life is. The largest species with one, some of the longest lifespan only lives three to five years. And one reason that people are surprised by this is that we tend to think that intelligent species live a long time and are very social. Right. And the octopus is neither. Yeah, yeah. So what do they use their intelligence for? Figuring out puzzles. Well, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Well, their whole yeah. life is a puzzle. Yeah. Um, this is not my observation. It's Jennifer Mathers and a number of other people's. But um, the reason that octopuses are so smart um, is that they have lost the ancestral shell. They are mollusks like snails and clams. And when they lost the ancestral shell, they were an unprotect unprotected packet of delicious protein for lots of different animals but they also could hunt lots of different animals themselves so it forced them to be smart in order to outsmart kind of like us actually yeah (laughs) they are they are like us but we have a long time to learn i mean imagine if you had to get all your reproducing and and living done by the time you were five we wouldn't do very well at that But they get it all done by the time they're five years old. Yeah, actually, that brings up, that's a good segue. I was thinking, uh, so you talked about in the book about, I think it was with Athena, which was the first octopus that you met, right? That you sort of entered into, it's another area that we can't really know how another being perceives. And that being true of time. And so for us, three to five years is relatively short. But I wonder, and you were saying when you were, with Athena, like time would just, you'd sort of go into this other space. Um, so I had two questions about that. One, if you've experienced sort of time shifts with different animals and or people, and if, um, I mean, just conjecture, you think that might be that to an octopus, three to five years doesn't seem like a short, like they might have a sense of having a life that might be what we would consider long. Yeah. Um, I think, that it's reasonable to think that to an octopus, when they get to be five and they die of old age, they probably have just as much opportunity to feel that they have led a, a life that is now finished and complete as a person who lives to 90 and dies in their sleep. Um, one would hope so. The Greenland shark can live for over 200 years, and they must look at us... <laughs> And feel so bad, but you know, time is so interesting. The the experience of time. Um, my best friend Elizabeth Marshall Thomas has written a a book on aging, which is going to come out next year. And she points out how time is so slow when we're young, and yet mm-hmm. goes so fast when we're old. And she's looking at like why that might be. And she points out that for us, in the first twenty years of our lives. We change from being a completely helpless, larval creature that can't even sit up to someone who votes and drives and swims and spells and reads and talks and and loves and accomplishes things. But then you look at 
the 20 years between 50 and 70, and relatively not all that much happens. You write a bunch more books, you make some more friends, other friends may, may die and break your heart, but you're not undergoing this complete radical change. So our perception of, of time as humans is, is subject to a great deal of, of change. And I think that when I kind of step into the world of, of an octopus, maybe I'm stepping into their flow of time, which is measured differently than ours. And maybe it's closer to what's real because they've been at it much longer than we have. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, octopuses have been on Earth for, well, gosh, we last shared a common ancestor half a billion years ago, okay? They've been in the sea in recognizable octopus form for a great deal longer than than our ancestors even thought of coming up into the trees, much less going back down from the trees. So maybe that has something to do with the way time seems to flow. But it also might be just what it's like giving yourself over to another creature's reality. Maybe that was what was happening. It really it felt like something magical. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a certain magic in realizing time differently than we do in normal. I mean, I, I think it's a big draw. Oh, oh. oh there's... Hi, hi. My brain's a little foggy right now, so I'm easily sidetracked. Oh, no, I was just saying that I think that that's something that is part of the appeal of a lot of um, altered states that people and animals go towards. Yes. Because, like, I remember, I don't, I haven't smoked weed for a long time, but I remember being fascinated by the fact that I could be hang out with my friends for what felt like three hours and look at the clock and you know 20 minutes had gone by and that was like <laughs> and and also um during other experiences just realizing different things about time and and just how fascinating that is yeah um i found scuba diving scuba was diving, mind yeah. altering too yep yep yeah and everything altering yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it, getting into an altered reality is exciting for a mind yeah i i couldn't agree more um, well, I think those were, um, well, I, I have one question just to, as a, as a fan of, um, did you, were you involved with the, uh, you wrote a book about Temple, right? About yes. Temple Grandin? Yeah. Which I'm for super. Young, for young readers. For young actually. readers. Yeah. yeah. Were you at all involved as a consultant or in any way with the film? Was no, but the film was in production when, um, I was down over, over in uh, Fort Collins with her, and she was dealing with last-minute issues with the with the film. And, it, and she loved the film, by the way. Yeah, good. Claire Danes, she said, was me. Yeah. That's what she said. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. I've, I've seen Terrific. that several times. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, it's such a good movie. I mean, not everything in it is as it happened in her life, right. but the emotional truth is completely honored. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, that movie had a profound effect on me i'm always really grateful that she exists in the world as a bridge such a potent yeah. potent figure i'm so excited to learn more about her work and her um but you have to go so let's wrap this up <laughs> i just want to say like the humongous thank you 
um, for doing this and for, for the work that you do in the world and for sharing it with the rest of us, which I think, you know, in my judgment is a monstrous gift. Well, I have so enjoyed talking with you. I love that you're doing this podcast. I loved your questions and I, I loved all the insight that you, that you brought to this talk. And, um, I'm honored to be part of your podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Sai. <laughs> Under the sea, an octopus is guarding 
I'd like, I'd like to be, to be. 